EU Confidential gets started right after this message. Today's episode is presented by the EPP Group. Will farm to fork decrease food supply and increase prices? Yes, according to Professor Dr. Christian Henning, a guest on the latest EPP Group podcast. Tune in. Well, I don't know if you've noticed, but liberalism's kind of <laughs> having a difficult time of it at the moment. I mean, you're pointing out, as you say, rightly, politically, you know, that it's one of sort of the least fashionable things you could possibly call yourself. Welcome to EU Confidential, Europe's number one politics podcast. I'm Andrew Gray, Politico's EU editor in Brussels. And you just heard the voice of our special guest this week, British author and journalist Ian Dunt. Later in the podcast, you'll hear him talk about his new book, How to Be a Liberal. That's something you may or may not want to be yourself, but either way, it's an interesting conversation about liberalism, its current struggles, and where it might go from here. But before that, we have a lot to talk about, including two big events this weekend, a summit of EU leaders in Rome and the start of COP26 climate talks in Glasgow. So let's get straight to our podcast panel. David Herzenhorn, our chief Brussels correspondent, joins us from Odessa. Hi, David. Hey there. And uh, right here with me here in Brussels, but soon heading off to more glamorous locations, is Carol Mattison, who's our senior climate correspondent. Hi, Carol. Hey, Andrew. So we're here to talk about two big international gatherings, which are back to back, really. The G20 in Rome first. David and Carl, you'll both be there. David, give us a sense of what you expect to be the, you know, the top subjects on the agenda and what the Italians, who are the hosts here, are hoping to achieve from this two-day gathering. Sure. Well, there's no question that for this year's G20, climate change and the continuing coronavirus pandemic are the two big topics. Italy, of course, having been one of the hardest hit countries in Europe by COVID and the G20, Carl's going to tell us more about it, coming right before the COP26 in Glasgow. And typically what we would expect in the world of global diplomacy is the G7 smaller club trying to set the pace and the tone for the G20, the G20 then trying to do the similar pace setting for the United Nations, whether that's at the UN General Assembly or at the COP uh, climate talks. Now this year, a little bit of calendar switch where uh, UNGA obviously has already happened, but the Italians clearly looking to play a role in that conversation, having the 20 largest industrialized economies going into this with some degree of unity. We don't know that they'll get anywhere close to that. Now, the other thing that I'm watching is that there's a possibility the sideshow may be the main show in Rome. And that's because US President Joe Biden will be there and plans to meet with French President Emmanuel Macron. They have this ongoing diplomatic dispute over security issues and a deal uh, that the US had made with the UK and Australia. AUKUS, we know uh, France lost a big submarine contract, questions about Indo-Pacific strategy, but really the French angry about being blindsided. And the US has been on something of an apology tour there. Also, Biden meeting with the Pope, Mario Draghi, the Italian prime minister, meeting, uh, as we understand, with the Turkish president, Recep Tayyip Erdogan. So all of these sideline issues, as some folks would say, they really haven't met in person in two years because of the pandemic. And so now that you get some of these leaders back, there is a lot of interest in them getting to talk to each other in bilaterals. Also a big deal, two people who won't be there in person, Vladimir Putin of Russia and Xi Jinping of China, 
and this is super interesting. Uh, neither one of them has been traveling very much because of the pandemic, but there's also a question of whether these contrarian often powers are pushing back against the Western-led constructs. Uh, it might have been a point when they really wanted to be in the club at these events. Now they may think they're a little too cool for school. Mm. Yeah, and Carl, let's come on to the, the climate aspect. How big a deal is are those absences from the G20? And then take us forward from there into the COP. You know, what are the expectations in terms of climate policy from, from both gatherings, the G20, also obviously shorter and with a, a kind of bigger agenda. And then the COP26, when the leaders get an upgrade, they go from Rome to Glasgow. What do we expect to come out of that in the two weeks that that conference will run? Yeah, I think on China, obviously, with anything with climate, you have to look at China and Everything that Xi Jinping does says matters immensely and his no-show in Rome, we don't know what it's going to mean. So there's two schools of thought. It could be a huge deal or it could be that he's not traveling anywhere and that's just how it is. We also have to see the G20 itself through the lens of China and the effort to convince China and India really as two of the biggest coal-using nations to phase out coal. So that's one of the things that Mario Draghi's put on the agenda for this meeting. And then there's like some other climate subplots within that. They're the West, America and Italy and the UK are really pushing hard for these developing countries to sign up to an agreement that would set the course for net zero by the middle of the century, 2050. There's a few op options being discussed. Now, if you get the G20, which is about 80% of the world's emissions, signing up for a mid-century net zero goal, we're really talking a huge downturn in the emissions prospects for the world. So the stakes are very high. Does anyone really think we're going to get that? No. And also the other thing that's being discussed at the G20 and then into COP is, of course, to get to net zero anywhere like net zero by 2050, you really have to start cutting emissions immediately wherever you are, developing or developed. And that's another discussion, point of discussion, but the Chinese haven't really shown any willing to do that yet. The Indians certainly haven't. And lots of other developing countries are really pushing back on that. And they haven't submitted updated plans like they were asked to ahead of COP26. So the discussion's stuck. Do we think that there's going to be a, an outcome from the G20 or a fudge? I would actually say no. I think they're going to push really hard for the most ambitious outcome that they can get. But given that there's this spillover, like they're going to fly literally from Rome to Glasgow, most of them or all of them, and there's going to be continued meetings about the same topics, why would they fudge it? And also if you're the Italians, you know that you're trying to push for more ambitious outcomes. Why would you try and close the deal in Rome on Sunday when the same leaders have to fly and then do the same discussions in the eyes of the whole rest of the world, all the vulnerable countries, they have to do it in front of Pacific Islanders and they're going to have a lot more input. So the discussion broadens into the multilateral setting in a really interesting way. And when it comes to China, that is also an interesting factor because China much prefers to have these discussions in a multilateral setting. For them, the G20, I think, is an informal group. It's not a place where you know, they can exercise their role as the kind of their vision for themselves as the kind of dominant power in the planet. So is the G20 in a sense, um, excuse the phrase, but almost a kind of warm up 
which which may kind of set the tone to an extent, but ultimately the nitty gritty where we're really going to know how far the world is, is willing to go, that's going to take place over two weeks in Glasgow. Yeah, I'd say you can't judge the climate outcome of the G20 until you know the climate outcome of COP26. And just give us a sense of these uh, big gatherings, these COPs, which we, you know, which take place. How does it actually work? We're used most of the time to covering summits which are already challenging. Uh, you know, with EU summit, for example, you have 27 countries plus, you know, EU officials from the EU institutions. But this is on a whole different scale. So how does it actually work? And how do you as a reporter go about covering it? They're wonderful things. I've been to four and I've covered one remotely, the last one, Madrid. And it's really the whole world coming together and in the craziest way trying to solve the most important issue that's facing the planet. And it's very bureaucratic. The language is completely indecipherable to outsiders. So that's one thing. You have to sit in it for a while and just understand that. As a reporter, it's fantastic because there's so much access you're wandering down the corridor shoulder to shoulder with ministers, negotiators are walking in and out of rooms, and it's not a hyper-political process. It's a, te- it's a technocratic process, so people want to talk details and ideas. So, And also there's 197 countries there, so the kind of diversity of the earth is right in front of you. It's, it's a, so it's simultaneously great but also pretty depressing because it's 30 years in and it continues to under-deliver on its promises. And as a reporter, my intention always is to go into these things and hold the entire process up to the yardstick of science. And ultimately, we've promised to hold warming to two degrees and pursue efforts to go below 1.5. And there is absolutely no signal from the political space that we're doing the latter, pursuing efforts to go below 1.5. And in fact, we're at the moment on the path to 2.7. We are bending the curve down quite a lot, but since the Paris Agreement, so the Paris Agreement looks like it is working, it's just not working fast enough. Is there a kind of choreography? I mean, how do you get from 197 countries all in, I imagine, lots of different conference rooms holding all these kind of negotiations in parallel into something that resembles a kind of final agreement? How does that actually happen? Things get discussed in committee rooms, everything's very sort of disintegrated into lots of different meetings and it's all run at a kind of very technical level. And then as the fortnight goes on, things will come up and up and up and every now and then they come back into a plenary and then you get these very tense moments when the presidency will take what they think might be a deal, the UK presidency in this meeting, and they basically put it out to 197 countries and they say, will you accept this? And then you just get this pile on and it's fantastic It's because it's all happening in public and you'll get people thumping tables and calling each other, it's calling it a betrayal of what was agreed in Paris. And so you get this wonderful moment and then everyone scurries back off to the committee rooms and starts redrawing the text and at the end what you get is an effort on the last moment when everything seems lost, a bunch of people will huddle in the middle of the room generally and you get concentric circles of power. You'll have the very, very most powerful countries right in the middle of that huddle and then as you go out, people will be leaning over trying to hear what's happening and that's where the deal gets done. Having said that, we think huddles might be banned at this uh, 
conference because of COVID-19 regulations. Whether that holds or not, we don't know, but it's going to be interesting to see how they actually make a deal given that that human aspect. You need that a little bit, but also some of the smaller countries are saying that that might be a more plurilateral decision-making process because they don't get they don't end up on the outside. They don't get shoved out to the outside. Yeah, yeah. this is the experience we all have with kind of online meetings. I mean, sometimes it can be a great leveler, uh, but other times it can be just not very practical and just no substitute. David, any thoughts from you either on the climate issue or on particular just this whole aspect of we've only just recently got back to in-person summits here in Brussels. You and uh, our colleague Jacopo Baragazzi were manning the fort for us at the, the European Council summit recently. How much of a difference do you think that's making that they're kind of back to this more regular, more normal kind of way of doing business, which I guess you will see in Rome to an extent as well? Well, it's it's really an open question about how back to normal we are. We're seeing uh, places turn red again. Ukraine, where I am right now, has just turned red and re- new restrictions coming back in place. Literally, as I walk around, uh, we know that for journalists, we're required to do a PCR test before going to Italy. That might not otherwise have been the case uh, just weeks ago. So hard to know if, if in fact, it's getting back to normal. But there's no question there's been a craving among leaders and diplomats to be back in person. We saw this, uh, I did at least at uh, the UN General Assembly, where still they were in a smaller format than normal. It kind of worked for us that it actually pushed people out from within the UN complex in the campus out into the real streets where we could grab them a little bit more. But I do think there is these two continuing issues. And Carl and I have talked about this kind of dual imperatives to deal with the crisis of climate change, which we know is urgent, but a longer term crisis and the crisis of COVID, which is an urgent crisis and a shorter term immediate crisis in terms of, uh, of vaccines. Obviously, the vaccine donations have not gone as well, certainly as developing countries hoped, and even as the EU and other powerhouses in the vaccine manufacturing realm had promised. Now this tension that's developing between the question of booster shots for folks in some of the more developed countries, as opposed to getting first shots out into the developing world. And that just won't go away. So these are heavy, heavy agendas for these leaders to wrestle with. And uh, sort of no escape from either issue. Uh, Meantime, we know there are other things like international corporate taxation, security issues that we know will play out on the sidelines. So just a very busy time. Yeah. Well, we'll uh, follow both of these gatherings closely. I think we're dispatching you, Carl, with a recorder or two to give our listeners a real real sense of this uh, kind of great in some ways kind of festival of nations, but in other ways a very sort of highly political, very tense gathering. So look forward A festival to of doom, yeah. yeah a festival of we'll doom. We'll try and get well, into those huddles with well. the recorder. <laughs> well, and we wish all our listeners a very happy weekend. Uh, anyway, I'm sure we will bring it to life as only we can, but we'll leave it there for now. David, Carl, thanks very much. Thank you. Thank you. And to keep up with every twist and turn of the COP26 Climate Talks, be sure to check out Politico's Energy and Climate Newsletter, which is usually only for pro subscribers, but will be available for free for the two weeks of the COP. You'll find it on our homepage, politico.eu, every morning, or you can sign up to have it delivered directly to your inbox via a link that we'll put in our show notes. Now, Glasgow as you may have occasionally read in some rather cliché-ridden reporting, has something of a gritty reputation. But it's also known as the Dear Green Place, a sprawling city of parks, culture and fine architecture. 
from the Art Deco work of Charles Rennie Mackintosh to the handsome red sandstone homes of the West End. And of course, for the next couple of weeks, Scotland's largest city will host the COP26 in a conference centre on the banks of the River Clyde. So, how prepared is the city and the Scottish government, led by First Minister Nicola Sturgeon, to host this huge global event? Let's double down on the whole guy with a Scottish accent called Andrew Talks Politics thing and bring in Politico's reporter in Scotland, Andrew MacDonald. Hi, Andrew. Uh, Hi, Andrew. Great to be here. Good to have you. So I wanted to get a sense from you of um, this big moment, really, for Scotland in the international limelight. Give us a sense of the main challenges that the city, that Scotland faces in hosting this big gathering, especially during the COVID pandemic. Yeah, I think there's a bit of a a mixed feeling in in Glasgow towards this summit. There's obviously a lot of excitement because it's a big climate summit. Glasgow is is, is a big city. It's one of the biggest in the UK and it's it's used to things happening. Um, A few months ago when I think one of the DC Batman films is being filmed, you'd be lucky enough if you stepped out in Glasgow to maybe spot the Batman, and now <laughs> when you're in when you're in Glasgow, you might be lucky enough to spot Joe Biden. But um, there's no getting away from the fact that there are a lot of big issues that have faced Glasgow. That there's some concern that these issues could overshadow the summit and the way it kind of works. Yeah, give us a sense of what are some of the biggest kind of hurdles the the authorities are having to overcome. A lot of the, a lot of the headlines kind of ahead of this have been on the prospects of big public sector strikes during COP26. And there's there's two elements to this, which is worth kind of splitting this into. And the first is the prospect of train strikes, because in the guidance for delegates coming to Glasgow, it quite literally says the most environmentally friendly way to travel to Glasgow is by train. And up until around about 8pm on Wednesday night this week, it looked like trains were going to be on strike for the entire duration of the summit. But under threat of, of, of striking over the COP26 summit, these unions have managed to get ScotRail and the Scottish government to some extent as well around the negotiating table. And at the very last second, they've averted the prospect of strikes by agreeing at an improved pay deal. But then the other element is that two different sets of, of public sector workers working in, in refuse, in um, school cleaning and catering and, and janitorial services and recycling a number of workers from these sectors are still planning strikes and as of a couple of days to go before the summit, they will be striking during either the first or second week. And that, that gets you onto the big kind of newsy issue ahead of the summit, which is the state of Glasgow streets. Glasgow's council leader, Susan Aitken, said a couple of months ago that Glasgow just needs a spruce up. What I would say is that We've got some work to do to get Glasgow looking back to its best well, well, and describe? some of the neighbourhoods. Give, I... me, give me an adjective to describe how you think it is. I'm, I'm saying I think it's filthy. I've lived here 58 years. I've never seen it as filthy. Well, I've lived here 30 years and I think there have always been challenges in Glasgow. I've been a councillor since 2012 and so actually... it's not filthy. What's your word? I think, I think Glasgow needs a spruce up as we emerge from COVID. In two months' but, time... Uh, uh, interview, I believe, was with uh, STV's esteemed political editor or special. I mean, he might have a different title now, but uh, STV's Bernard Ponsonby. And that has generated a lot of anger because the truth is the pandemic and, and um, cuts in the number of bin collection services from every two weeks to every three weeks 
have basically left lots and lots of pictures of online and lots and lots of complaints of, of rubbish basically overflowing out of bins. Um, now, an MSP I was talking to the other day said he, he was driving in Glasgow and he, he saw two council workers painting a bin, which, you know, fine, they're painting a bin. But the issue is the bin was overflowing. There was rubbish all over the street around it and they just left it. And then there's a particular issue with fly tipping. We should maybe explain for some of our, our listeners. So fly tipping is basically dumping stuff illegally, not putting your rubbish where it's meant to go, right? Just dumping it in kind of, I don't know, random places, basically, or certain sites that then become just kind of improvised dumps, right? Yeah, exactly. And that's kind of gotten a little bit worse over the pandemic because due to cuts in council budgets, they've introduced a charge for picking up bulk amounts of waste in Glasgow, which means... To avoid that, businesses and individuals have basically been chucking their fridges, their, I don't know, abandoned toilets, etc. Basically anywhere. Right. Okay. So there is the question of whether the city is going to be looking its best uh, when it's in the international uh, spotlight. You know, I, I will say for the sake of balance that uh, there are many very nice parts of Glasgow and I hope the delegates get to uh, experience those. And I do hope they're clean enough to enjoy and let's get on to the politics a little bit more now, uh, Andrew, because this is obviously a big moment for the Scottish government, although officially it's the UK that is the host or co-host of COP26. It's taking place in Scotland, so it's a big moment for the Scottish National Party, which leads the government in Scotland and also leads the council in Glasgow. So how is the uh, Scottish National Party or the Scottish government looking to capitalise on this moment and what are the risks for them as they go into this big moment for Scotland? I would say you should expect to see more of, of Nicola Sturgeon over the next two weeks than you would of Boris Johnson, who isn't going for the entire summit. But Nicola Sturgeon has a packed diary. So there'll be lots of photo ops, lots of, of speeches and lots of interviews where she'll be basically you know, trying to burnish her government's green credentials because the the SNP have, have just kind of agreed a, a quasi-coalition deal with Scotland's Scottish Green Party, which is, you know, the first time that a Green Party has entered government in the UK. Part of the appeal of that for the SNP and, and the Scottish government was that having a Green Party in the government naturally makes you look greener. So with that in mind, they'll be trying basically to burnish their green credentials on the world stage, make it kind of look a bit like they are more ambitious than the UK government. And it has to be said that the Scottish government does have a more ambitious net zero target than the UK government, um, slightly, but it is true that they do. Now, obviously, there is a certain amount of antagonism between the UK and the Scottish government. Generally, the, the SNP government, Nicola Sturgeon's government, is uh, in favour of independence, wants to hold a second independence referendum. Uh, in the coming years, uh, the UK government is opposed both to independence and to the holding of a second referendum anytime soon. So do you think the two are willing to kind of bury the hatchet and share the limelight? Or are we going to see uh, each trying to kind of get one up on the other uh, during the course of this summit? Well, the interesting thing is that uh, Boris Johnson and the UK government were actually taking quite a hostile tone towards uh, Sturgeon and her involvement in COP26 a few months ago. But that's actually, I think they've they've softened their tone a little bit. And I think it's been noticeable that Nicola Sturgeon and, and the SNP have kind of put on, on hold for now the talk about independence referendums and her interventions recently. Her interventions have instead been targeted at kind of alliance building with other small nations and, and talking about 
the good that Scotland can do in a green sense on the world stage. So there's been a little bit less of a focus on independence. And I think you can expect her still to allude to it, especially if it becomes clear from what we're hearing from the talks that they aren't going particularly well and that the UK government aren't really achieving any headway with, with other world leaders. You can maybe expect to hear a bit more from Sturgeon on independence. Okay, well, we'll see how it all plays out. Andrew, thanks very much. Thank you. Stay with us, because right after this short message, we'll explore the state of liberalism in the UK, Europe and the wider world, and where it might go from here, with British journalist and fellow podcaster Ian Dunt. A message from the EPP Group. EU farming needs transformation, but it must benefit both farmers and consumers. Just putting additional constraints on the farm sector will not do the job, according to Professor Dr. Christian Henning from the University of Kiel, whose study found that the new farm-to-fork strategy will result in price hikes of up to 60% for EU-produced meat. Henning discusses with Herbert Dorfman, MEP, and Finnish farmer Susanna Suonio in the latest EPV Group podcast. Check the EU Confidential Newsletter for the link to the podcast. Liberalism is under threat, and one of the people making that argument is Ian Dunt. He's a journalist who came to prominence through Brexit as an articulate and outspoken Remainer. He founded the popular Romaniacs podcast, and he wrote a book called Brexit, What the Hell Happens Now? Now his second book has just been updated. It's called How to Be a Liberal, The Story of Freedom and the Fight for Its Survival. And I spoke with him about the book and the issues it raises. Maybe just to begin, would you like to define a liberal? Because your book is about how to be a liberal, but that word is used very differently. You know, in the US, it tends to denote someone who we might describe more as left wing. In Europe, Emmanuel Macron will kind of run a mile rather than be uh, labelled liberal, even though, you know, they had to kind of rename this group in the European Parliament, which used to be called the Alliance of Liberals and Democrats because he didn't want a liberal label. So in France, it's kind of toxic. So what's your definition of a liberal? It's someone who believes in the freedom of the individual. Um, And over recent years in Europe, we've tended to start thinking of the word individual as quite a right wing word. It isn't really. I mean, the idea of the individual is why you have the concept of human rights. Human rights are derived from the idea of individual rights, protections against interference by the state, by society. Human rights traditionally thought of as a left-wing ideal. But even in economics, the debate over what you do with individual freedom cuts both ways. Of course, you have the state as to stay out of the way of the market and all the kind of classic stuff that we now call neoliberalism or libertarianism or whatever. But there's also another view. It's probably best put by John Stuart Mill and later on by John Maynard Keynes, lots of people called John, basically, uh, which was that if there's individual freedom, you need to make sure that each person has the same opportunities, that each person has the same kind of material protections, um, the same protections in their workplace, in their accommodation, the same opportunities to flourish, despite any kind of oppression they might feel by virtue of their race or their gender, that actually you do need to interfere in the market in order to protect individual freedom. And why did you feel the need then to write a book about how to be a liberal? Uh, well, I don't know if you've noticed, but liberalism's kind of <laughs> having a difficult time with it at the moment. I mean, you're pointing out, as you say, rightly, politically, you know, that it's one of sort of the least fashionable things you could possibly call yourself. I could almost have sort of I felt like I was writing a book on Marx in 1989 or something like that. You just feel like you're writing it right when you're up against the wall. 
people have this yearning to talk about a better way of communicating, a better way of debating. And yet the current way we have of debate, trapped in a tribal identity group, hacking away at the other side, not really working through consensus, not having the confidence to seek out the strongest version of the argument against you, not having the humility to think that actually your opponent might have at least a half-truth, a sliver of truth in their argument. All of these, that degradation of debate we've seen, is because we've turned our back on really foundational liberal principles of how you conduct politics. You said that liberalism is having a tough time at the moment. What do you put that down to? Why is it not more popular? It's a very, very big question. Yeah, <laughs> yeah just 30 <laughs> seconds will be fine. Um, look, there's a lot that goes into that, and partly it's to do with technology and, and the sort of shattering effect that's had on the way we communicate and in the way that we think of our own identity. Partly it's to do with the triumph of identity politics on the right and the left and the manner in which that makes us think of what political debate is about. Tell us a bit I more think, about that, because I know that's part of the book as well, and that is a, you know, a phrase that gets used a lot now, identity politics. Why has that affected the fortunes of liberalism, do you think? Yeah. So... If you look through sort of Western philosophy, I'm simplifying here massively, but there's two very key strands, right? One of them is the individual. The individual is the unit of analysis. The other is that the group is the unit of analysis and the group changes. It can be the nation state, it can be a religion, it can be a race, it can be a class, you know. And it sort of says whatever the group wants is objectively real, that there shouldn't really be any obstacles to it being pursued. The group is usually called the people. So, you know, if, if you think differently to the majority view, you're kind of an enemy of the people, or at least you just don't have enough faith in the people. You see it in a kind of watered down Ribena model with modern day populism on left and right. On the right, it refers to the nation state. I mean, the classic examples are showing, you know, enemies of the people for judges during the Brexit debate in the UK. On the left, it's typically, you know, about racial groups, ethnicities, genders, sexuality where again you get this homogenized view of the people that are completely distinct so they're completely homogenous with those who are like themselves and completely distinct from those who are unlike them and are in a battle of politics which is defined by virtue of their identity so yeah we've seen that process on left and right and i think if you look around us right now you see the kind of damage that it does to the way that we conduct politics and to be honest by the way that we feel about our own society and our ability to make incremental progress towards a more just state mm. And what mistakes do you think liberals themselves have made? Are some of, you know, the liberals' travails self-inflicted? Oh, God, yeah. And half the book is about, you know, it's basically attacking liberals for the things that we have done. Look, I mean, the key one is we got seduced by laissez-faire. Laissez-faire is that idea, state stays out the way of the market, markets regulate themselves, all of that, um, really from the late 70s onwards. And so you see it in the financial crash, right? I mean, it's amazing to look at the testimony of people like Milton Friedman in the years, or Alan Greenspan in the years leading up to the financial crash. They'll constantly talk about, oh, the market will regulate itself. Now look at what happens in the financial crash. You know, you get credit rating agencies sticking AAA ratings on investment assets made up of mortgages, which are then being used for liquidity in the repo markets, keeping this whole system flowing, which they are themselves being paid to give by the people owning the asset. A clear conflict of interest, completely ignored at the time, largely ignored in our own, pretty much proof positive that the market doesn't regulate itself. You get a bottoming out of the economy, and worse, you get this sort of message to people that you're just a kind of atomized economic unit. You know, your sense of belonging doesn't matter. Your sense of community doesn't really matter. You're just a consumer if you're anything at all. 
How liberal do you think the European Union is? If you look at the UK post-Brexit and you look at the European Union, would you see one of them as more liberal than another? Certainly, look, at the core of the European Union is a profoundly liberal idea that was born of that post-war liberal, you know, liberalism said it's toughest and it's most courageous, always just after it's nearly gone extinct, <laughs> which is why I have great hopes for the future. <laughs> um, you know, so after the Second World War, you, you know, it had almost gone extinct and there was a threat of, of Soviet Union. So you saw one, an old liberal idea, which is basically that trade will replace war that we will get through peaceful means what we have otherwise been reduced to violence to secure. And that's what you see at the heart of the European Union, building it into the single market, into the customs union, and creating these extensive freedoms that come from it, freedom for goods to move, but freedom pivotally and of utmost importance for people to move, for the individual to move in space. But that is not to say that everything the European Union does is liberal. I mean, when you look at the attitude towards refugees, and in fact, when you look at what even very respectable mainstream non-nationalist politicians in Europe have done with pushback operations into Libya. Specifically, that's probably the most egregious with the deals that were done with Erdogan. Um, I think that, I mean, you know, that is not a liberal policy. It is a shame, something that should shame the European Union for as long as it is around. So, you know, the world isn't a perfect place and things don't fall into easy categories. Mm. The European Union is a fundamentally liberal institution but it is currently engaged in what could at best be described as some highly reactionary practices. Right. And now what we can see within the European Union, in certain countries anyway, is a kind of rise of a liberalism in Poland, in Hungary, people openly rejecting some of those values or talking about, you know, an illiberal democracy. What would you say to Viktor Orban, for example? Well, I'd say two things. First of all, that there's, I mean, really, we ourselves fall into his rhetorical trap by calling it an illiberal democracy, because the actions that he has taken in Hungary means that it cannot be justifiably described as a democracy at all. I mean, he has rigged the game to the point that the overall result cannot be trusted. But the key philosophical part is this, this idea that liberalism is a form of tyranny just like any other. Liberalism is distinct from almost any other political ideology by virtue of its central focus, and that is freedom. Now, if someone else comes up and says you have to live this sort of life, that is a form of tyranny. When liberalism comes in, it says you are entitled to live whichever life you choose. If you choose to live a life of tradition, of conservatism, if you want to become a monk or join the army or if you want to wear a hijab, there's no number of things you can do, some of which are deeply illiberal, some of which are very lives that are not committed to freedom. You are entitled to do it under liberalism. Liberalism protects the choice making of human beings. Mm. I wonder also, one of the criticisms that you hear about liberalism sometimes these days, or liberals, is that they have become in themselves illiberal in that they sometimes are not very tolerant of views that are not their own. I mean, I don't know how good an example this is, but I think, for example, when Tim Farron was leader of the Liberal Democrats and he had views on homosexuality, which he thought were aligned with his Christian faith, but a lot of the Liberal Democrats felt you couldn't really be the leader of the Liberal Democrats with those views. You know, what happens when those two things clash? And, and is there a danger that liberals in themselves are illiberal in the way that they judge kind of public debate? I think it's a really good example. And it speaks to one of the toughest things you do as a liberal, which is you have to be able to live with things that you don't like. And Tim Farron had his evangelical beliefs. So the key question was, how has he voted? Because he is entitled to disagree with whatever he wants to disagree with. Mm. But the question as a liberal is, did you stop other people pursuing 
the lifestyle you disapprove of. Now, in that case, his voting record was good. I mean, there was one minor quibble on one small amendment, but basically it was good. He had voted against his own instinctive moral interest. And that, not just as a liberal, I'd say it's absolute peak liberalism when you're voting against the things that make you feel comfortable. So, yeah, I mean, you could say there's some illiberalism among liberals, but the truth is, when we say that word liberal, just as you alluded to at the start, people don't really know who on earth they're talking about. Yeah, let's come on to Brexit. Was the Brexit debate almost like a clash between a liberal and an illiberal Britain? Why do you think it fired people up so much on both sides? You can make a liberal case for Brexit if you want. I mean, what you can't do... You know, because basically you're just talking about where is sovereignty and how much do you centralise power. This stuff is part of liberal debate. You can come to different perspectives on it. What you can't do is, you know, talk about the will of the people, start attacking judges, start attacking the parliament, start attacking the press. You can't start sort of talking about immigrants as if they're this sort of cancer eating away at the heart of your country, where almost all the problems that have been caused are by virtue of those immigrants. You'd left the world of objective reality in exchange for a kind of messianic tribal longing. You constantly on the lookout for people you could blame for the failures of that policy when they finally emerge. And the people that you mostly found were liberals, you know, metropolitan elitists or whatever they want to be called, and immigrants. Now you take that picture as a whole and it becomes entirely academic. Could there be a liberal Brexit? Because it's so far away from what we had. It was an authoritarian, right-wing, populist project. And that is what it remains today. And how do you see, as, as a prominent Remainer, Romaniac in the name of the podcast, how do you and others like you see the best way, if you like, to be as close to the European Union as possible, to rejoin one day if that's what you would like to do? To a lot of people in, on the continent, it's a puzzle to see how popular the Conservative government remains, which may suggest you know they've got something right. I met up with a friend I hadn't seen in years the other day at a birthday party who listens to the podcast so they didn't know he did. And he was like, the one thing I always wonder is, just you guys have been losing for so long now. <laughs> How do you keep your spirits up? And it's true, man. Of course we are. It's important to remember, I think, if you are European, you know, that this is a first past the post electoral system, right? So a government can win very big majorities, can look very sturdy in power with a minority of support in the country. It's important, you know, to remember, to always remember that most people do not like Boris Johnson in the UK, that most people are not voting for the Conservatives. But the opinion um, polls still show they're, you know, they're ahead in the polls, like if you just do... But- yeah. Which... The opinion shows so about a five-point lead. When you start breaking into the opinion polls, especially recently, this is not because of Brexit, this is because of the sort of energy crunch, the labour shortages. Well, I mean, they are because of Brexit in that way, but, you know, it's not to do with the debate, you know, in the abstract. You're seeing very, very low ratings suddenly. And I think as soon as you get a different government that isn't defined by Brexit, it will, by laws of trading and economic reality, start to be pushed towards a closer economic relationship with the EU. And that's really base camp. What is the next deal? How close can that get you to the EU? The conversation for rejoin is for a few years after that deal has been secured. So we're looking a pretty long way off, it saddens me to say. I think we'll leave it there. Ian Dunt, thanks very much. No, thank you, mate. And that's all the time we have on this episode of EU Confidential. Be sure to subscribe or follow the podcast wherever you listen. And remember that you can always send us feedback directly to our email. The address is podcast at politico.eu. I'm Andrew Gray in Brussels. Thanks this week to Lucas Kotkamp and our executive producer, Christina Gonzalez. And thanks to you for listening.